1: Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people. When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When salmon claim millions. When justice. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionist and actionist Johannin Elaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is March 3rd, 2016, and we have a number of important stories to share. A lawyer says that a black South Carolina woman died in a jail cell after being deprived of water. Joyce Cornell, 50, died from complications caused by dehydration. This this death comes on the heels of a new report on the racist practices of police across South Carolina that has led to huge disparities in arrests. Also. In South Carolina, a police officer has been charged with misconduct in office after defacing, defacing a post, poster in a victim's garage with a racial slur. The officer had responded to a call of domestic disturbance, but could not resist an act of racism before leaving the property. A criminal defense Attorney recently took to Twitter and went on an epic admonishment of the criminal justice system and specifically against a cop who lied under oath to frame his 17-year-old client for a traffic violation he did not commit. Los Angeles County in California is spending more than $233,000 a year to hold each youth in juvenile lockup, proving once again that children are huge cash cows in the context of mass incarceration and slavery. If the children are placed in this solitary confinement, it costs even more to torture them. A piece of criminal justice reform legislation awaits action by Congress to eliminate the cash bail system in the federal courts and bars, states that use money bail from access to desirable Department of Justice grants to law enforcement. The bill seeks to address a two-tiered system for the poor and those with access to resources. A human toll of jail is a new platform launched by the Vera Institute of Justice that encourages victims of mass incarceration to share their stories with the public. A rare collector, dealer, recently came upon a memoir written in the 1850s by Austin Reed, a black man who spent most of his life in prison. It's the earliest known prison memoir by an African-American writer, and it has now been published as The Life and the Adventures of a Haunted Convict. The memoir is said to link prisons to plantations before the Civil War. A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, is Albert Woodfox, released after 43 years in solitary confinement. Our abolitionist in profile is Grace Greenwood, author, poet, and journalist, 1823 to 1904. We invite you to join the conversation tonight by calling us at 1-641-715-3660, extension 549-032-PAM. Just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Pontus. What's happening, Brother Scotty Reed? How you doing, man?
0: I'm not going to complain too much. I mean, I got a lot to complain about, and you are finna hear it uh, during the next two hours. But uh, personally, uh, I'm doing a lot better than um, a lot of other people behind these enemy lines. So I'm thankful uh, for that. And uh, at the same time, I'm also, you know, uh, standing in agreement uh, with friends of the part this family in, in hoping for and sending out, you know, those uh, good vibrations of healing powers to your wife, uh, who we, we are most concerned about as a member of our abolitionist family.
1: Thank you, brother. Yeah, it's been really rough here these past few days. I'm actually broadcasting right now from the hospital itself where I'm at with my wife and have been now for several days. Uh, she's had a, a serious episode uh, that caused 90% paralysis in her body uh, we didn't know it was touch and go for a while there but she's talking now she still can't move she has some use of her uh, right arm and her right leg a little bit but it's going to take some months for her to recuperate so thank you very much brother that's been tough
0: I can um, I can imagine so I can imagine so um have yes. we heard from Johannem? Will he be joining us? I, I suspect, you know, uh he'll probably be joining us later as he makes his way uh from his job.
1: Yes, he he contacted us on the uh planning page and said he'd be about thirty five to forty minutes into the show.
0: Okay, okay. Now as we have talked about a lot, you know, there's so many of these horror stories and sometimes there are, are good news to report, but a lot of stuff doesn't even make it on to the show as, you know, we only have two hours. Um, but one story that caught my eye uh, recently, and I shared it, I believe I may have shared it on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page over the past couple of days uh, and Black Talk Radio Network's Facebook page. But there is there's a story of another uh, uh, instance of jail guards, These, this is in a jail and not in a prison, but another gladiator fighting ring that these uh, 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 guards were involved in and forcing uh, two of the prisoners to fight each other. I mean, and then they were betting on it. Where have we heard that before? And so I, I think that this is probably more common than we know. So that's one of the stories that did not make it uh on but again you know we can look back at deep uh, um look back at slavery prior 1865 uh, when it was primarily on plantations but as our um um uh, one of our stories is going to show about the memoirs is that hey uh, prison slavery And I think, Max, you even uncovered when the first federal prison was built. That was in South Carolina, wasn't it? Wasn't that before the Civil War or was it after the Civil War? But I do remember you reporting about a private prison that was built in the 1850s.
1: Well, actually, the uh, Department of, of Corrections here in South Carolina Proudly boasts on their website that their first prison was built in 1866, precisely one year after the Emancipation Proclamation in the 13th Amendment.
0: Yeah, but I do remember a story about a private prison. Um, being built in the 1850s so this isn't anything new but my point is is I try when I talk to people about abolition and the state of mass incarceration which is really modern slavery and I say okay you picture um, in your mind from the movies you've seen perhaps the things you've read um, about what what Uh, enslavement was like for the human beings being victimized in in that evil institution. You know, you want to talk about rapes. You want to talk about beatings. You want to talk about killings and what all of that. You want to talk about Mandingo fighting. Okay. That's the kind of stuff that's going on even today. All right. And, and, you know, people just need to open up their eyes and they'll see it and hopefully make the connections.
1: Hey, Scotty, if you don't mind, I know a lot of people are going to tune in tonight just because they uh, want to know what was going on with Tribal Rain, and I'm standing right next to her. You mind if I give her a ch- chance to say hello to everybody? Sure, sure. Yeah, Go right in here.
0: You.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Tribal Rain. I wanted to give you a thank you for all of your prayers and well wishes. I felt them while I was out for a little while, and I appreciate all of you and love all of you.
0: Thank you, Tribal. We we love you, too.
1: Man, I, I didn't realize just how many lives we had touched until this happened, and so many people across the country were, uh, became prayer warriors, and I think that made all the difference in the world, brother. So, yes, thank you indeed to everyone that uh, sent goodwill, wishes out to us, and prayed on behalf of
0: Tribal Reign's well-being. Thank you. Most certainly, most certainly. Um, so do do did you have anything that um anything else before we jump to our first story that uh perhaps you wanted to discuss? Yes,
1: I did. I wanted to uh point out something that's in the newspaper today here in South Carolina on the front page of the State News. They're quoting us again, Scotty Reed, and of course they're not giving us credit for it, but we know where this information came from. In the uh, front page of the uh State News it says it's a story regarding what happened in spring valley and it says forum focuses on issues that spring valley incident made international news and apparently they got a bunch of people together to talk about how they could make a change where these types of incidents wouldn't happen any longer and at one point uh someone by the name of christine crystal who was part of the association uh that came together she is uh an associate professor in usc's department of educational psychology warned the 100 or so people present of the cost of not constructively dealing with problem students. Why should we care, Crystal asked, displaying a cartoon of a car with two bumper stickers on it. One sticker said, my son goes to Penn State. The second sticker said, my other son is in the state, Penn. The cost of a year at Penn State is $60,000. While the average cost of incarcerating a youth in South Carolina is $155,000 a year, Crystal said. Now, you know where that information came from, Scotty Reed. We have been putting that up everywhere we could. And I personally stood in front of City Hall and announced it to the world, telling them what it costs to incarcerate a juvenile here in South Carolina, which is utterly ridiculous.
0: Still ain't as high as New York, though, is it?
1: No, sir. New York is $353,000 a year. One child for one year is worth more than a quarter of a million dollars. That is a bounty on our heads that would dwarf the bounty that was placed on Harriet Tubman's head, on innocent children.
0: Most certainly, uh, and, and, and you're exactly right. So don't tell us that there's no incentive uh, for the for um, mass incarceration. There's an, There's an incentive, and it's not to address man made up crimes. Um, yeah, Max, let me just say this. You know, I came up with a new term, all right, that I'm going to start incorporating in my speech and in my writings when I'm talking about non violent drug crimes. Instead of calling it non violent drug crimes, I, I, I need to make the distinction. That these are are only crimes because they have been legislated, okay? And and so these are legislated uh, drug crimes. These aren't, you know, I think I've stated before how I view a crime. I view a crime as uh, one individual violating the uh, life, liberty of stealing the property, violating their property of another human being. If if your actions do not harm another person, Um, um, you know, especially intentional acts. I know some things are unintentional, unintentional, but when we're talking about uh, substances that people have used for thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of years, you know, and then a bunch of politicians, other people get together and say, hey, uh, let's, let's prohibit this, let's prohibit that. You know, and we know the history. It wasn't because they were concerned about the health of anyone because certainly, uh, you don't have a whole lot of healthy outcomes, uh, you know, occurring in prisons and whatnot, you know, and, and, and so, uh, I have, you know, we just had to start using more accurate, uh, uh, language to describe what's going on because, you know, I was in a, a deep conversation about four hours with, with one of my uncles last night and, you know, we started talking about the drug war and stuff like that, you know, and so he was like, you know, there's been times I've been down and out and this and that and I didn't go sell drugs and this and that and and whatever, but I was like, okay, that's you, ump. That's you. That, That was your conscience that wouldn't allow you to do that. Perhaps you had other options and obviously you had other options and skills to where you didn't have to result to that while you were experiencing, you know, uh, uh, whatever it was you were going through when you were out of work, but for many people, you know there's no jobs which you've been talking to me all night about all the jobs going overseas and whatnot, and I talked about you know the jobs coming back, but they're in the prisons. And, and whatnot, And he was just he, he was sounding like a Republican to me, even though he hates the Republicans. But he was what he was trying to do was defend the policies of Hillary Clinton, because that's what we were talking about. Hillary Clinton. And so, you know, I just started thinking about that. I was like, you know, there's a difference between crime, actual I don't know what I would call it, natural crime or or, you know, crimes against humanity or whatnot. Uh, but there's a difference between those sort of crimes and then a bunch of other people uh, with the power to dictate to to the rest of us how we should live our lives when we're not harming anyone. That's a le- that's a legislated crime that creates crime where none existed before. And certainly, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, they use this to create the world's largest prison slave labor force. So, I mean, what what are you what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I'm in agreement with you, brother. Uh, I like the the term legislated uh, drug crimes uh, in 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 exchange for uh, what you have been previously using, nonviolent drug-related crimes, which is a mouthful, to be honest with you. You know, there's a few things that we say that are big mouthfuls and need new words, like uh white racist supremacy is a mouthful. I've decided that I'm just gonna start saying catfish instead. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a big mouthful, brother. But you have narrowed it down to uh really what it is. It's not so much a crime, it's what people are making a crime. Just like they did in eighteen sixty six with the black coats.
0: Right, right. And that's why I was trying to get through through to him. So um. Do we want to move on and and jump on this first? Uh, first, actually, these first three uh, stories we could roll them all into one because they're all dealing with South Carolina. And I know you uh was particularly wanting to speak on this. So, do we want to jump? Go ahead and jump in on that.
1: Yes. Yes. Certainly. Because we want to try to squeeze some extra time in today if we can. To mention some of the things that we didn't talk about last week because we had lost power last week. So we didn't air at all. And we did have some very important things. So we could squeeze in at least some words about the geo groups quarterly meeting uh, earnings report towards the end of the show. I would like that.
0: Oh, you you reminded me, Max. uh, Again, apologies. We were not on air. Um, I power was out uh, where I live. Uh, Fortunately, we didn't see any damage on, on, you know, the local area I live in, but it it did knock out power to over 400 homes in my area. And I'm just going to be frank with you. You know, Max, you've seen our storage trailer, and I just didn't want to go in there and digging through all my sister's stuff to find the generator. So apologies for us not being on air. Uh, last week, but Max, before we jump to the first story, I don't know if this is Johanna or if this is uh, a listener who has something they would like to share. So I'm gonna go, yeah, ahead, and, I'm and, gonna go ahead and take that seven five four. Go ahead with your question uh, or comment.
1: Question. What's going on,
2: brother? Huh? What's going on? Who we
0: speaking What's going with? On? Who we speaking? Uh, y'all
2: speaking with uh, with Seneca from Florida again. What's going on, man? Welcome back to New Evolution. New Evolutionist Radio. It's a it's a little bit of a delay. I apologize if I'm late, but I was um I was just thinking, you know what I'm saying. Unfortunately, I just got a chance to tune in, but you know I was listening, and I can't quite articulate it um either, Scotty. But yeah, it it, it's not a crime. It's a in my eyes, it's a constant it was a conflict with those people that were in power and you know what they wanted you know what i'm saying and what they didn't want and unfortunately that those things got put on the board hey that's a crime that's that's find a way to make this even worse than just oh it's bad this and that let's make it a crime let's funnel it into the system of slavery which we, you know w- w- incarceration mass incarceration which we call uh slavery because that's what it is Continuation. so I was just listening to you, Scott. I was like, "Yeah, man, I, I, I've been feeling the same way. It's, it's not a crime, and that's why we can't put it in words because we've been told crime, 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 crime for so, years. But it's not. It's a, a confidence. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're Bye. right. Yeah, you're right. What
1: was a crime? Was crime. I think you. you
2: I think you got. You got to turn them I need to turn them down. Yeah, because yeah, I'm getting get Okay, is, is that better? Uh, yeah, so
1: what I was saying is, like, not too long ago, uh, marijuana was illegal all over the country. You know, and they were arresting our brothers and sisters left the site. And now you got states like Colorado that are making over $100 and some odd million just on taxes for the loans. So that's what I But now this is legal and they're making money on it. But They're still arresting people for marijuana.
2: Right. So it, it it don't make sense. How would you still? You're, now you profit in both ways. Yeah. Uh, when you wherever yep. it's legal, uh, excuse me, legal, you're getting tax money, and wherever you you deem it uh, uh illegal, you're locking people up and you're making money off people. I'm man. I'm just. I'm I'm kind of like. <laughs> I'm channeling my inner Johanny right now. I'm just. I'm fed up, man. Like I'm tired. Like how how is it that me. Right, I am 37, you know what I'm saying? I've only been conscious for what? i say a good year and a half, two years. But how is it that more people around me, forget social media, I'm talking about actually around me, how y'all not seeing it? How is it like, and I, I, I understand, but man, we are the smartest, brightest, most intelligent people on this planet. How is it that more of us aren't, like the light bulbs, and, and um, I forget what I was listening to, but they were making a reference to the movie. I don't know if you guys remember it. They uh, They live or something like that with Roddy that Roddy. Was me. Um, yep. that, that was you? That was
1: me. Uh, that's how I felt like after I became an
2: abolitionist. Yeah. Like, okay, not only can I see what it be, I see a real enemy, I actually see you guys for what you are. Speaking of, of Caucasians, but like I can actually, and I feel it. I'm sorry, I sound crazy right now, but I feel it when I walk or I'm in the presence of somebody that's conscious. I liken it to looking at a a, a comic and seeing someone with a light bulb over their head. It's mm. like, it, you know what I mean? They, you can, you can feel it. It's like it, it is energy, not like it is energy. And I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of upset because it ain't more, more light bulbs on around me. Just being honest. Under-
1: well, brother, don't brother, don't, don't, doubt don't doubt that changes change is coming, change because, change. because since we've been on air, we've seen major changes come, and we've seen a mass awakening. Just four years ago, in the 2012 State of the Union Address, there was no speech on criminal justice. Now everybody's talking about it. Now you see people you know, disrupting Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, gatherings here in South Carolina and confronting her with what she did in the past. See, people are waking up. And that's probably the most important thing we can do is to continue to help people to wake up. So collectively, we can continue to make this change.
0: Right. Each one teach one. Each one, teach one. I, I just had to mute your line because whenever we were talking, it was echoing. But uh, as we get ready to move to our next segment, and I think, uh, yeah, Johanan is joining us, but did you have any final comments for us, brother?
2: No, I just – I'm just listening and I'm just – I'm hearing and I'm just – you know, I'm, I'm going to stay on the line because I might – I know I'm going to want to jump in again, but I'm hey, just, I'm, I'm I'm being more to entertain and being educated, so I'm loving it. Y'all brothers, keep it up, and like I said, I'm going to stay on the line.
0: All all right. Just hit star six and one uh, again. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm just going to leave your mic open in the caller's queue uh, because that will put everybody, kick my host out of the queue. So just keep yourself muted until you would like to chime in, and then you can unmute yourself. All right. Thank you uh, for sharing.
1: Got
0: Okay. Yo, honey.
3: Welcome home, you,
1: honey.
0: Peace. Peace <laughs> to
3: the abolitionists. I'm here, y'all. I'm here, y'all. Death to the oppressors. Death Destiny. to the oppressors. Oh man. oh, man. Just everything. Just everything. The same thing we do every week. You know, we uh, we be going through it on the backside of this thing. People don't even know. I mean, last week with Scotty with storms. I mean, you was affected as well, uh, Max, and now with tribal rain with all of this. Man, my heart been hurting like Wow. We're we, we just going through it as a family, but, you know, we're going gonna to
2: stay strong.
1: I don't even know how we're managing it, brother. It's been one thing after the other with us, you know, losing a house in a flood. She just had a stroke in December, and now she's here I am right now broadcasting from the heart hospital with her paralyzed in the bed just three feet away. Oh, God.
3: So, yeah, but we're
1: staying strong, brother. We're soldiers. We got to do this until it's done.
3: Right, right, absolutely. So, I'm catching up. Uh, where are we going? Uh, which story well, where are we going on?
1: Our first story is going to be about Joyce Cornell here in South Carolina. Uh, I got the page open if you want, I'll go right into it. Yeah, yeah. this is sad. all right. Well, this comes from News One, and the title says Black South Carolina Woman Dies After 27 Hours in Jail Without Borders, lawyers say. Joyce Cornell, 50, died of complications caused by dehydration. I'm still getting kind of an echo from someone. Yeah, sure now that that
0: time it was coming off of uh, Johan and it's not coming yeah, off right. the other line because he muted himself. So, uh, Johanna, if all you right. can mute yourself uh, when you're not speaking and just, you know, you know how to do it. You're an old pro with this.
1: All right. Well, the story says, after being treated for gastroenteritis at Bon Secure St. Francis Hospital in Charleston, South Carolina, in July, Joyce Knell, 50, was arrested. Uh, uh, Let me just stop right there. Let me say it's how it really happened. She went to the hospital for an issue that she was dealing with, and while she was at the hospital, somebody called the cops somehow, and she was arrested from the hospital on an outstanding bench warrant. From a 2011 shoplifting charge, nothing unusual about that, they say in the article. But what happened next was downright criminal, said the lawyer representing her family. Cornell, who was battling sickle cell anemia, alcoholism, and hypertension, was found dead in her cell just before 5 p.m. Eastern uh, ET on July 22nd. She had been deprived of water for 27 hours. A medical expert told her family's lawyers that the persistent vomiting likely triggered her sickle cell disease, which worsens dehydration, writes the New York Daily News. Court documents filed Wednesday against the jail's medical contractor said that Cornell remained sick at the jail where she spent 27 hours before dying of the stomach flu and complications caused from dehydration. Her family's lawyer cited jail officer's statement that the inmate was vomiting within minutes of being taken to her cell after a medical screening. She was given a trash bag. <coughs> wow. She was given a trash bag after she could not make it to the bathroom and continued throwing up. But a nurse at the facility said that someone would be around about 5 AM to check on the sick woman. Doctors at the hospital where she was arrested had ordered her to receive prompt medical attention if she showed symptoms, including vomiting, abdominal pain, and dizziness, notes the report. Cornell's death came at a time of increased scrutiny of how Black women are handled behind bars. She was one of at least six such women nationwide to die in law enforcement custody that month alone. They included Sandra Bland. The inmate found hanged in a Texas jail days after a state trooper pulled her from a car during a traffic stop. Her death was ruled a suicide, but the trooper was indicted on a perjury charge for this, his handling of the rest. If the charges are true, we hope Cornell's family receives the justice they deserve. We all hope anyone who sanctioned the treatment faces criminal charges. Now, as I just read the story to you, it's so long winded. But the bottom line is this. The woman went to the hospital seeking medical care. Somebody called the cops or uh, somehow got the cops involved, and they pulled out an arrest warrant on a fine that she did not pay from 2011 for a minor shoplifting charge, charge. They put the woman in jail, refused her medical attention, and their version of kindness was to give her a garbage bag to throw up the last of her life in for the next 27 hours. And that woman died in that jail due to a, a lack of any kind of medical attention or concern. And this is what we talk about here every week. Once you cross that border and you are walking behind those bars, whether you're innocent or guilty no longer matters. You're just your life is valued at what it costs to incarcerate you for that single day. That's what you're worth to them and that's how they treat you. Brothers?
0: Uh yeah, I'm just I'm mute everybody. Um uh... Yeah, so we didn't have that echo. Um, yeah, man, it's it's just really tragic, man, and it's due to a lack of of humanity among the jailers and whatnot. You know, um, um, I mean, how, how what type of people think about what type of people these must be um, to just be so evil as to deny a person, you know, even just a cup of water. I mean, come on. That's just sick, man. It's just sick, and it just happens too often, and it happens too often because of the lack of accountability, the lack of criminal prosecutions, the lack of convictions, and then putting these people, you know, uh, rightly into a jail cell. So, I mean, mean, we just keep hearing about these stories over and over and over and over, and and I'm like, man... When are we going to get to the point to where we going to be like the angry villagers storming the jails and the prisons, demanding a release of of all these people who are in there because of nonviolent, legislated crimes that haven't harmed anyone else? It's just it's just a sorry uh, uh, state of this this country, man, if we can call it that. Yeah, man, I just
3: I'm just tired of seeing. I'm just. I'm looking at everything in terms of propaganda, in terms of what we are shown, what's what's blown up, what's put in our face, what we're given that that is used to, to seed, you know, things deep inside of us to normalize behavior. I mean, all of these things are techniques. These are sciences. These are not just happenstance. This is not just random. A lot of people will say things like, oh, you, that's just you taking it too deep. You're reading too much into, you know, people will say things like that. But at the same time, those are the very same kind of people who don't pay attention to what the hell is going on around themselves. But I'm trying to tell you, they, they do these things in groups like this. Like we had a time period where it was, you know, Alan Bluford, uh Ramarley Graham, uh, Oscar Grant. You know, we, we saw like big banks of our teens, you know, Trayvon. And then Jordan Davis, you start seeing like big banks and groups of you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, national newsworthy stories of our of our teens uh, being killed. Then we went through a little time where the babies was getting killed. With Ayanna Jones, there was a couple others. It was a wrong in her time period that that died and and passed in police custody. Even then, they went into the older people. Uh, Kenneth Chamberlain, uh, senior. Then there was a few others. The ninety Furley uh, Golden, old old ninety year old older lady. Then another ninety year old uh, mother sitting in the house. You know. So they they move these groups around like this, and now we're seeing the thing with the sisters, where you know you got us. of course Sandra Bland everybody knows that Kendra Chapman out in Alabama Joyce Cornell we talk about now South Carolina Raquina Jones in Ohio Alexis McGovern here in Kansas City, Missouri, well, Missouri, uh Renetta Turner I mean this is like another grouping another 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 bank of these stories that were put out you know over the last uh, year or so to normalize this brutality towards our women like this so we got had to get used to our kids then to our elders then the little babies you know now our sisters and the, oh, all the time going through the 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 uh, continuous theme is that the black man you know can catch it at any time you know or whatever so it's like these things are, are not as happenstance like i said they seen this a lot of this is is Whether the actual stories are happening and being orchestrated to happen this way or not, I don't know that. But just the way they're being reported and then sent out into the news cycle and then you just get another name to add, you know, it's just it's it's affecting us on a deeper psychological level as well. And if we don't rise up against it, if we don't do something about it to stop it, if we don't get some prosecution of people that are responsible, if we don't do something to buck the trend, what they're doing is waging an effective propaganda war against us, which is dumbing us down, which is creating more fear in us, which is raising up another generation you know, of children that are coming up in this, in this society where this is normalized. And they don't stand a chance of fighting back against it. We living in a time where all of us on this program remember the Black Panther movement, remember the political prisoners, remember the people that gave their lives literally to fight for freedoms that we barely hold on to now. So what are these kids going to grow up and, and remember?
1: Right, it's going to be so normal to them. And that, that's the desensitization right. part where it comes in. It just normalized it by flooding the airwaves with all of these murders and killings left and right. And as they pointed out in that story, there were six different women that month who died in jail cells. And you mentioned uh, Kenneth Chamberlain, the, bro- the, old, the elder brother, uh, mm. I believe he was a veteran who called for 911, and they ended up coming to his house, killing him, breaking in his door and killing him. I was with one of his family members just yesterday who came here to visit Tribal Rain and we talked about that story. It's just heartbreaking right, to know that so many people are losing their lives like this. And, you know, there is a, a retribution going on. You see a lot of cases now of police being uh, shot and killed, but eight out of ten of those killings are from white people killing cops. So it's not that you're just angering black America, you're angering all of America.
0: You know, I was just mentioning that last night um, to my uncle because he watches the news a lot. And I said, I don't know if it's just me or because, you know, I, I, you know, I I, uh, search these type of stories out and I have, you know, uh, Google alerts to alert me. But it seems like more officers have been killed this way. I mean, this year. I mean, it's like I've been hearing at least, I know of at least five stories where these people were shot and, and, and killed and, and whatnot. So I, I, I noticed that too, man, that people are are starting to, and then what's sad about that, like, for example, the rookie cop that got killed the other night. Y'all hear about that? First day on the job.
2: I heard about that.
0: Yeah, first day on the job. All right, she ain't even had an opportunity to put nobody <laughs> into slavery, you know. She ain't even figured out. Probably don't even know the game. Maybe she did, you know. But, but you know, um, some of these cops, man, I don't view all cops as as being evil or whatnot. There, I do think there is a role, um, for uh, so-called law enforcement. But I would rather we had peace officers. But yeah, I'm you know I appreciate the people that's keeping us keeping the roads safe and you know getting the drunk drivers off the road and and, and preventing the accidents and responding. I'm not talking about those type of cops, but you know I, I, I'm talking I'm talking about these people that know what they what they are doing, you know. And then when they and then that just causes a random cop who may not be you know be so bad uh, and, and getting killed. What's that?
2: You know. It's just like my mom used to say, you know what I mean? The good have to suffer with the bad, unfortunately. And she was always put that unfortunately on the end because it is unfortunate. You know, you, I'm, I'm, and I'm seeing it because I, I kind of am out here with, in the street with them sometimes. I'm seeing that these young guys, they, they, they're very um, flashy. You know what I mean? It, like they only have their minds on a few things, and they don't care about other things. They just have their mind on those few things. And once you try and block one of those things, that's when they go, man, these, these young guys, man, they don't care, man, these kids. My son is 17, my, my oldest son is 17, and I hate to say it, but he was almost, besides me and his mom, he was raised by Robot Chicken, and um, what's the guy name? Tyler the Creator, and all this kind of crazy stuff that come on TV late night, and. You hear it in you know, your your video or your earphones, and I looked at them then, and I was so scared. I look at them now, and I understand. It's like they they trying to trying to trick us. And they got us like so docile and and, and on this gay stuff and all this other stuff. But out of out of that, they making these kids ignorant. And once they make it, 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 it sounds crazy, but once they're making them ignorant, it's like they don't care about none of those things. And once you block one of those things, like once one of them to go to jail and get out, it's like they have a total understanding of what's going on, what to do, where to go at. And unfortunately, a lot of them take that route to go in, you know, shoot a cop, you know what I mean? To go in and, in, in, like, the one guy in Michigan, he, he, what did he say? Tell tell everybody, don't worry, all, all the raw white people. You know what I'm saying? It's like I don't know. I I like I said I don't know how to explain it, but it's an interesting phenomenon that's going on with these young people, man. And then you got to you know the young people that are conscious, that are, are knowledgeable and, and, and very educated with, with, with marches and protests and things like that. So it, it to me it's just an interesting dynamic. Now the, now let me make this
0: the uh, distinction and guys we kinda falling behind on our time. Uh we gotta take a break and uh get these other stories in but um I did see um an article that was pointing out the fact though that most of these people that are killing cops are white men. So that's an important distinction to me- to uh make you know, because about- we don't want to play into the Hillary Clinton uh promoted theory of super predators and whatnot, but you know um it's a war zone out there, man, and, you know, we're starting to see casualties, more casualties on, on both sides, and something has to be done to stop it. But, Max, you want to take us on to the next story?
1: Uh, Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you pointed that out again, as I was saying, that uh, keep in mind, these are not black people killing white cops or any kind of cops. Eight out of ten of these are white people killing cops. So it's, it's not us, you know. Do a Hillary Clinton, like you said, and start blaming black people for something that we are not doing. Uh, Speaking of these cops, here in Richland County, we had a Richland County catfish deputy has been fired and charged with misconduct in office after defacing a poster in a victim's garage with a racial slur. Sheriff Leon La announced Tuesday. Uh, This story comes from the state, by the way. And Khalib Catfish Broom, 25, responded to reports of a domestic dispute at home on North King's Way on February 23rd. deputies deputy's the victim, Broom, circled Nigeria on a poster map of Africa, turning it into a racial epitaph. Scott said he then stole a piece of double-sided tape from the victim. Today's one of those days as a sheriff and a cop, you just want to shake your head in amazement and disappointment, Locke said. Broom committed a criminal violation by taking the tape and broke the popular rules by writing the slur. Though the tape was only worth 10 cents, that did not change the fact that taking it was a theft, the sheriff added. When he took that piece of tape, he crossed the line. Lot said, he tarnished the badge that we wear. A fellow deputy urged Broome not to do what he did, then reported his actions afterwards. Kudos to you for reporting him and telling him don't do it. According to Lot, uh, Broome turned himself in to investigate it just before 2 p.m. Tuesday. That was yesterday. He was released on a $10,000 personal reconnaissance bond. Brown was with the Sheriff's Department for about two years. If convicted, the charge of misconduct in office carries up to a one-year imprisonment. Brown was an offensive lineman at Georgia Military College who signed with the South Carolina Gamecocks as part of the 2011 recruiting class. He served in the backup role for the hell with his recruiting class in South Carolina. Let's talk about what he's doing as a catfish out here practicing racism, white supremacy, certainly. Nigeria in somebody's house and turning it into the N word. For for what? What was the purpose of that? And see, these are the people who, once you see that this is what they do, you have to research every case they ever did to find that they were ever involved in to find out if they've used their position, their authority, their power in combination with their racism to put innocent people behind bars.
3: I agree.
0: Well, I Man. keep. I but keep. My-
3: when that fool said he crossed the line when he took that piece of tape, though, I mean, honestly, that's when he crossed the line. Was because he stole the tape. That's that's when he tarnished the badge. Yeah, well, I don't expect a lot out of me.
1: Unlock.
0: Well, my only okay, comments on that is kudos to the good cop. That's what a good cop does is turn in the bad cop. You know, first he tries to prevent him from doing what he's doing, and then he reported him. Cause how many times? I mean, down there in South Carolina, we look at the murder of Walter Scott. There was a cop, uh, another cop on scene, who then filed out a, a false police report to help uh, Michael Slager road. cover up the uh, the crime. So again, yeah, it was a black cop, and yeah, it was a black cop assisting uh, the catfish, Michael Slager, and whatnot. And, and so you know, we do need to encourage more cops to engage in this type of behavior reclaim your, well I can't say reclaim your good name because you ain't never really had one, you know, because <laughs> you always been engaged in in a uh, uh, police state-like activity you enforce reclaim Jim Crow yeah, yeah, so so forge a new path for law enforcement to where you actually are engaging in protecting and serving people instead of being out there terrorizing people. So kudos to that cop who turned him in.
1: Right. I remember Lord, uh, Sheriff Lott said a couple of years ago when in regards to the death of Brother Niles down here, that his death was just collateral damage. And that was uh, how he expressed the death of a young teenager here in South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina, collateral damage.
0: Well, let's keep it moving. We got another story to cover. Uh, We got about 15 minutes to the top of the hour.
1: That sounds like a good idea, Scotty Reed. Uh, As a matter of fact, maybe Johanna will take the next story, if you can pull it up. It's in regards to the criminal defense attorney who recently took to Twitter on an epic rant, and you guys have got to see this rant and hear what he had to say. It just shows you how demonic and how petty these people are and the price we pay even as children. This man was willing to send a child to prison just because he was a a catfish, That's there's no reason. He's a damn catfish, working with catfish. And he decided that he was going to earn this county some money by sending this child to jail and framing him for a crime that he did not commit. Fortunately, there was what is called a money shot. Johanan, do you have that story?
3: Yes, I do. Unfortunately, uh, we got more foolishness. It says uh, this is from Fusion, which uh, I like this uh, website Fusion.net. They have a lot of good stories on here. Um, this T. Greg Doucette is a criminal defense lawyer in North Carolina who also writes a legal blog, and he's got some things to say. So he put out a tweet where he says, uh, I need to rant briefly. You've been
2: forewarned.
3: Says says, uh, in a 43-part tweet storm on Tuesday, Doucette recounted a recent experience defending a 17-year-old black teen from claims by a police officer that the teen was doing 360s in the middle of the street. Over the course of the story, Doucette demonstrates many of the problems black people face in the U.S. court system and why changes never seem to stick. So they go into it. His uh, his, his tweet starts like this. I get asked often if I hate police. I don't. I look at police, quote unquote, generally like I look at teachers. Generally, when a teacher decides to rape a student, we don't demonize all teachers. Same with teachers who are woefully inept at teaching. But at the same time, no sane person denies there are teacher rapists and teachers who suck at their job. I view police the same. I'm willing to take a leap of faith and assume you're competent until you prove otherwise. So that brings me to court today. Client is a 17-year-old black male, in, which is a YBM in defense lawyer parlance. Uh, my YBM client is charged with reckless driving to endanger, which is a very serious offense. He's terrified. He cried in my office while explaining the situation. Insisted he was just trying to avoid an animal who had darted out into the road. He swerved to the right. I pulled pulled the shuck, I don't know what that is, and read the officer's narrative of what happened. Says the officer reported that the neighbor saw the driver doing donuts in the street, nearly hit his wife, skid marks show, clear 360-degree circles, The driver claimed he was trying to avoid hitting a cat, though. So he says, reread this. It says, clear, 360-degree circles in the street. Thankfully, how effing sad is it that thankfully is the appropriate word here. His mom didn't trust the officer and took pics, which she kept and she sent to me, most of which were useless. People take pictures of a lot of useless stuff when they're terrified. This is the money shot. And so he takes a picture of... Two skid marks that show a straight line that veered off to the right real quick like he was trying to avoid an animal. It ain't no 360s or whatever. He says, So go back and reread. Clear 360 circles. What the actual F? Do I hate police? No. I hate raging incompetent cowboys with badges financed by my tax money who clearly haven't had an eye exam recently. He says the DA was kind enough to dismiss the case without putting up a fight. My YBM client's family is out what they paid me. The client himself is traumatized and basis for police mistrust gets a fresh exhibit. While the officer who wrongfully charged him and pretty clearly lied on official court documents will face zero repercussions. This is what police brutality looks like. It's not just people having their rights violated and the the shit kicked out of them. It's an innocent 17 year old black kid trying to be a good human being and not running over a cat and getting thrown headlong into our court system as a result. It's having to come up with money you don't have to defend yourself against charges that, sh- that shouldn't have been filed against you. And recognizing that, but for photographs that someone had the foresight to take immediately, you would have been convicted, based solely on the word of a law enforcement officer who swore an oath to protect and serve, who then lied to the court with impunity. The state doesn't care, of course, for every one case dismissed, hundreds more plead guilty. Court costs are $188 plus a piece. A day's worth of traffic cases can finance an ADA's salary for a year. Likewise for a clerk or a judge. Guess what that means for legislators? They can cut pre-existing court funding and put it somewhere where it'll buy them more votes. So, you've got a court system that ends up somehow being underfunded despite charging a shitload of money for minor offenses. Police routing more and more people, predominantly young and black, into the court system patting themselves on the back for protecting us from evil 17-year-old black males who were trying not to hit cats while driving, while the politicians fiddle as their constituents burn because people naively assume things like this would never happen. Welcome to the cluster F that is our criminal justice system. I filed to run for the state senate precisely because of this. It doesn't matter if you put an R or a D or a U beside your name, this is wrong. Sorry for taking up your timeline. For reasons I don't understand, I'm still in disbelief that this type of thing still happens. When I know better, I know I'm going to clog my arteries with bojangles in the hope and prayer that I won't still be flamingly pissed after lunch. Uh, and then that's the end of it. So. Well, there you yeah. go. I mean, 360 degree circles.
1: Huh? I mean,
0: if you look at that street, you can't even do 363 circles without tearing up, running off into the grass and tearing it up that's a, like a little country road where i live you know uh um it, so I, I was like and then like like you said the money shot clearly shows that there were not donuts uh uh tire marks as the police officer falsely put in his report okay and if i was that young man i would be suing for false arrest false imprisonment i'm sure he spent some time in jail i might also would we'll go after The uh, 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 neighbor, if the neighbor, in fact, did tell the cop the lie and and, and whatnot and saying that, you know, he was doing 360 donuts and almost hit my wife, you know, and and, and that's that's like, you know, slander or libel or something like that, man, that had a very negative impact on this young man's life. And so I hope that they uh, take the appropriate legal actions and uh, uh, seek reparations. You know, I'm a
1: broken record with this whole thing, Scotty Reed. Uh, as usual, I want to know, is anybody checking all the cases this cop has handled? Right. Is anybody checking all the cases that this court has handled? Because it appears that this may be common practice for them, that this young 17 year old man or boy Uh, was was not even a human to them. He was just another way to make some money. What did they say? $188 for court costs. So just keep sending them through so you can pay the salaries of these district attorneys, assistant district attorneys and these courts, and then they start taking the funding away. And we've seen examples of this all across America, like in Ferguson, for instance, and in uh, the other place, uh, Country Club. So this is par for the course. Someone needs to investigate this police man's uh, record and see how many people he has done this
0: to. Well, also, it just came to me as you were speaking. In addition to that, he should also be prosecuted for perjury. That's a crime. He lied under oath. He filed a false police report. That's a crime in some states. I'm not sure about where this occurred, uh, but also uh, perjuring oneself uh, in court. Uh, under oath that's a crime so uh, it ain't it ain't enough for this prosecutor I was about to say well good job prosecutor for not you know trying to push this case but then I'm thinking well the only reason you didn't push it is because they had evidence to disprove it and you knew you couldn't win uh, with that with that uh, money shot as the uh, attorney called it uh, but did you follow or did you then charge the police officer for lying? And wasting the court's time and, and, and perjury and whatnot. That's what justice would require. Not just simply dismissing a case and leaving this joker on the force to go do it to somebody else. And like you just said, Max, he probably already has done it uh, uh, to many people.
1: If Not just that, maybe even worse.
0: Because,
1: you, know, you, t- you know, when you're able to get away with criminal activities, you push the envelope and see what you can get away with. So this may have been the minor incidents that he's involved in. And the only way to find out is to investigate him, to use this as the preliminary charge and a reason to have an investigation of this policeman. And I I bet you he'll start singing like a bird and pointing fingers in every direction. And before you know it, you'll have half a dozen heads rolling. Well, any other uh, comments on that particular story, brothers?
3: I'll just uh, bring up what, uh, what our abolitionist uh, comrade, uh, uh, Professor uh, Naomi Mirakawa had to say a couple of years ago uh, that I've still been quoting because, I mean, it's the truth and nobody's been able to refute it yet. We don't have any such thing as uh, police brutality. You know, there is no such thing as racial profiling. There is only policing as it always has been. When people get that in their heads, it'll make it a little bit easier to figure out what we're fighting against and why we're fighting and why we need to fight because there is no such thing as police brutality. Policing has always been what you see it as right now. There is no such thing as racial profiling. They've always been racist That's what their job is, is to racially profile. That's what slave catching was. That's what enforcing those racist, inhumane laws, unconstitutional laws, once we got a constitution, in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, these are the people that enforced that. They were just doing their job then. They're just doing their job now.
1: Sure, you're right on that one, man. Sure, you're right on that one. Well, we're coming up on our first break, and uh, when, we're gonna come, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk to you about a story that's coming out of the LA Times, which kind of just follows the theme of what we keep telling you, how much it costs, to arrest and incarcerate kids like a Khalid Router. But in every state, the prices vary. Uh, I know in Louisiana, a juvenile detention facility only charges upwards of about forty to $50,000 a year to incarcerated teenagers. They are literally the fast food restaurant of prisons in Louisiana, where adults are like $17,000 a year, which is one of the reasons why they have so many of these parishes and jails that are like kingdoms in Louisiana. But in California, they are the king of making money out there. Their Department of Correction budget is nearly $11 billion a year. And a lot of that money is taken up by the fact that it costs $233,000 a year to hold each youth in a juvenile lockup. So we're going to take our break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that story. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parker, Scotty Reed, Johan and Johanna Little Elijah. And we'll be right back after these messages.
3: Hear the drama get wicked. <laughs>
0: searching for the best in online black radio, then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, Black Talk.
1: Please welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. As I said, we're gonna get into the story about these juvenile lockups that are charging fortunes to incarcerate our children. At the top of the show, we talked about South Carolina, where in the headlines of the state newspaper today, it addresses the fact that it's $160,000 a year to incarcerate a teenager here through the private company by the name of Community Education Centers, CEC, which is one of the top prison companies in the world, private prison companies in the world. Started out in New Jersey and uh, along with contracts with ICE and Chris Christie. So now we're going to go over to California and see what they're doing there. Uh, Los Angeles County juvenile detention system was designed in an era when the youth crime was on the rise. The number of juvenile arrests has fallen dramatically in recent years. Some say the system has not kept up with this shift and now it's costing taxpayers money. I got to correct that part right there because that's a narrative that tends to mislead us about what's happening, it's not so much costing taxpayers money, it's more giving money to these private prisons. They are earning that money. They are taking that money. That is profit for them. It's not always about the loss for us. It's profit for them. The county audit found that the average cost of incarcerating a youth has soared to $233,600 a year significantly higher than other comparable jurisdictions. In Chicago, the annual cost was $204,400 per youth. In San Diego, it's $127,750. And in Houston, it was $84,680. Now mind you, often these are the same companies charging different prices to incarcerate youths in different states. There is not so much waste, said Jacqueline Castle, one of the 15 members of the L.A. County Probation Commission, and no one pays attention or cares. A high cost of incarcerating use is generating debate both inside and outside the county government and putting pressure on probation officials to address the problem. Youth crime began dropping in the mid-1990s, as overall crime rates began declining in many U.S. cities. Now, mind you, this was the same time that the Clinton crime bill came out in the 90s. And during that time, crime was already dropping before they declared that black youths were super predators who needed to be brought to heel. At the height the L.A. uh, County Probation Department's juvenile hall, Housed 2,000 last month. It was down 621. Juvenile arrests have dropped 30% in LA County since 2012 alone, according to a Rand Corp. study. Still, staffing has remained relatively steady, while the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors has resisted closing the agent network of three juvenile halls and 18 camps or reducing the overall staff as the ratio of employees to incarcerated juveniles grows. Now, see, this is another thing that you have to pay attention to. They don't want to lose their jobs. They don't care how many people are being arrested. It's about whether or not they're going to lose their jobs in these prisons and juvenile prisons. And that's what they're all about. They don't want not only to just lose their job, they want more people to be hired. And it doesn't matter how many kids are being arrested. I'm not going to go into the entire story. It's kind of long. We're putting it on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. You should take a look at it and read some of the quotes, like, for instance, in the camps, 535 children were detained in facilities built to hold 1,469, and the county continued to pay for the staffing and overhead costs for a capacity of 958. This is just money being thrown at the prison's. Just giving it to them, and somebody on the other end is getting kickbacks on it. You can best believe, Scotty, your
3: husband. <laughs> kickbacks, of course, of course, man. They uh, they call these things conspiracy uh, with, with good reason because that's exactly what a conspiracy is. These are this is again this is not happenstance. The propaganda that creates one and only one image of black youth for one thing that's real that's real that's real money is spent on creating those images and creating those memes and those tropes and putting those pictures out there and putting those news stories out there and putting that that propaganda out there so again you're dehumanizing you're desensitizing the general public the fellow man the the community this where this person's from let alone people that they've never met, but they've just seen their picture in a mugshot, so they must be guilty of something. So this propaganda is like gold. It's, it's, it's very valuable, and this, these people are deeply invested in creating this propaganda, so you won't care when they continue to throw out this huge dragnet and pull all these kids in. And then the second thing, which the average dumbass doesn't realize and doesn't understand. They just only care that it's not them and it's not their kids and it's not kids that look like them. They don't recognize what we're revealing in this story. It's thousand dollars to put each of these worthless, disposable kids in incarceration like this. So now you're losing all of that money for each of those kids and all they got in place is programs to get more and more of those kids and more and more and more of those kids. I mean, if you, if you spent just half of that money uh, before they went to prison, they
1: never would have went to prison. Right, you invested right. Uh, teen centers and educational yes. opportunities and job networks to these yes. young men and women.
3: Absolutely. Man, I'm, I'm here in Kansas City. Back when the first Million Man March went down, we came back from that march, 14 brothers, myself included, in a group called All Brothers United. At that time, now Congressman uh, Emmanuel Cleaver was mayor of Kansas City at that time. There were still some programs in place. They had a mayor's night hoops program where they had a, a different courts, different uh, basketball courts and different school gymnasiums. The mayor would have them open. The kids could go and congregate and some could play ball and then they'd have like a little kind of a school dance kind of environment or whatever. They had some tutoring programs that were still in place. We came back. We got in with those programs and start providing security, start doing some mentoring and tutoring and start getting some little league teams, and getting kids, doing things, getting involved, whatever. Um, As soon as uh, Mayor Cleaver was voted out of office, all of that went away. All that money dried up. All of those conservatives that we're going to do a trickle down. He was too liberal and was wasting too many funds. And all those kids were staying out of trouble and it wasn't generating money for my investments in private prisons. So we need to cut these programs and get these little darkies where they belong on the farm. And then we saw the incarceration rates go through the roof here in Kansas City, just like everywhere else, all throughout the middle 90s, through the Clinton era, all through the 2000s till this very day. And none of those programs have ever returned. People have tried and tried again to try to set them up as individuals and give out of their own pocket and Raise awareness on their own and get their church involved, get their neighborhood involved, and it's little, little sporadic little fires will spark up and then they get put out because you need funding, you need support, you need political support to be able to keep these things going. So, people, this is not some new thing. This is, this is as old as America itself. When are we gonna tell, get enough, though?
1: I tell you, man, if you just gave uh, one of these communities the cost of what it would cost to incarcerate one teenager. For one year, they could change their entire community. Imagine having two hundred and thirty-three thousand dollars to invest in uh, programs for the youth per year.
3: Yeah, you can Between change lives forever. It's socialism. That's what any any of the conservatives going to tell you. This well, we can't be just giving our money to try to. Well, we, Hell, Baldwin, I've been having black,
0: Baldwin? uh, I've been hearing black Hillary Clinton supporters saying that we can't give free right. stuff away. We can't send these kids to state college. Nothing is for yeah. free.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah. 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 Nothing's for free. But the thing is, is no, no, it's not for free. It's got a cost. It's, uh, $233,000 for a child in jails. And their systems are in place and are working to perfection to continue to get more and more kids, even though crime is going down. Imagine that.
0: And it don't even cost that much to even go to a state university. You probably could pay for all four years with that two hundred and fifty thousand right, dollars.
3: Right, right. Well, like yeah, you, you said in South Carolina,
0: it's
3: sixty
1: thousand dollars for Penn State.
2: Hmm. Well, wow. uh, hello, yes sir, yes sir. Uh, I I didn't know I was still online or not. You see, this is why I love. I love that woman. Miss Miss Wilson, I, I, I love that woman, man, and I, I hate that she's gone. I I just I think about her so much because along with you guys, she she taught me that looking over all that, racism white supremacy says we have to ride the backs of everybody else some kind of way. We have to they have to be profit for us. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. And that's all I see. That's all I see. The same thing you were saying, uh, Your honey. that, you know, all of these programs soaked up, Boys Club, YMCA, uh, you know, all all these team centers, all these different places soaked up in the 90s, and though crime went down, incarceration rates went up. And, you know, you you put so many things behind it, you say this, say that, it all comes down to what she said, is racism, white supremacy, because. They got to make money. there was some, there was some sorry people, man. I hate to say it about them. Some of them are, are good and some of them just like us. You know what I mean? But majority of them that I've come across, they sorry. They don't want to work. Only thing they do is scheme plans to make money off other people. Some kind of way. Well, that is their job. You're right. Control right. But
0: but I would add, though, it's not Uh, just racism and white supremacy as a system that we are contending with, but we are contending with slavery. You know, every white supremacist wasn't in slavery, but, you know, a lot of them were. Okay, and and so that's this again. It, we do know that uh, uh, slavery in this country became race-based. That with the inception of this country, you know, uh, in the 1500s or, or early 1600s, yeah, you had some indentured, you know, servants, mostly Irish, mostly uh, poor white people coming out of the prisons of Europe. But at the inception of this country, by then it had transformed to just. African-descendant people. Those are the only ones that we can legally enslave, and we're still dealing with it over 200 years later.
2: Correct. You are so correct.
1: And all of this is because of the 13th Amendment Exception Clause, which allows prisoners to be slaves. And it still exists in our Constitution today, despite any kind of logic that people might have when looking at it. Um, As a matter of fact, our next story is coming up, Scotty, uh, if you don't mind taking it regarding the cash bail system, I'll start uh, leading into it for you while you pull it up. Uh, I want to point out that when it comes to bail, cash bail, it's considered illegal all over the world. It's considered immoral and unethical to hunt human beings, for instance, with uh, bail bondmen, and to provide a cash bail system that is based on class. So rich people can walk out of jail as Yeah, rich people can walk out of jail as murderers because they have to bail to do so, bail money to do so, and poor people have to rot in jails waiting for trials that they'll never see in a a system that has a 95% rate where the people have not had any trials in jails. Anyway, uh, this comes out of TakePart.com, and the title says, No Money, No Problem, New Bill Aims to End the Cash Bail System. Yeah, um
0: a staff a staff writer by the name of Rebecca McCray uh wrote this article. She's based out of New York. She says bipartisan criminal sentencing reform of of effort awaits action from Congress. Lawmakers added to their list of considerations on Wednesday. That's today. Hoping to shift states away from the long-standing and widespread practice of demanding money bail in exchange for the freedom of someone charged with a crime. But not convicted. Uh, California Democrat Ted Lieu introduced the No More Money Bail Act of 2016. It will bar states that use money bail from access to desirable Department of Justice grants to law enforcement and eliminate the practice in the federal criminal justice system. Let me just add some commentary right quick. Um, uh, right there, it just reminded me of the people that are in jail in Flint, Michigan. And were forced to uh, uh, drink and bathe and that what they already know is contaminated, highly poisonous water. Okay, and and like Max pointed out, because it was brought out on this program that these people aren't this this is a jail. So there are innocent people in there that you know, according to the system, have not been proven guilty of anything. But so you know, why are they being why are they being treated in such a manner? These aren't these aren't criminals. At least not yet, you ain't been able to slap that label on them. And then another thing is, this is the drug war, okay? This is one of the proposals that I have talked about that any president, um, as the executive officer of the United States government, is in control of those grants that is done through the executive branch, through the office of the president. All right. Determining these law enforcement uh, uh, departments getting these federal grants. What do they get federal grants for? Um, They get federal grants to target, uh, quote unquote, illegal immigrants uh, to target uh, people in the drug war. Okay, Uh, but I don't see them giving them giving them any kind of grants to law enforcement to process that backlog of rape kits that you got. Or to solve, you know, hire more people to solve actual violent crime or recover property. Uh, but no, they give them grants to which I think establishes the quota system. Because if a police department is not producing the drug arrests or or detaining enough illegal immigrants, then uh, they won't get those grants. All right. Uh, she went on to say, "Well, um, no, this is Lou speaking." He said, "We cannot be a nation." that believe we cannot both be a nation that believes in freedom and equal justice under the law yet at the same time locks up thousands of people solely because they cannot afford bail said Lou he is the sponsor of the bail reform bill um he said he also said we cannot both be a nation that believes in the principle of innocent until proven guilty. Yet incarcerate over four hundred and fifty thousand Americans who have not been convicted of a crime. Uh, Lou Bill has three co-sponsors. Um, and uh, this is a pretty long article. I'm not going to read read it all. Um, but here is uh, another additional thought. Now, I can see. If a person and the evidence is pretty strong, you know, and you got a grand jury to indict on a murder charge or, you know what I'm saying, what I consider an actual crime, especially a crime, a murder, uh, a rape, something like that. I, I do think that, that you know, um, well, I'm, I don't know where I'm going with that because they still should qualify for bail. All right. Unless it's a serious, serious crime like what happened. You know, with the assassination of uh, the state senator down there in South Carolina in a vicious terrorist act that murdered, you know, um, uh, the other eight people that was in Emmanuel uh, Church. Yeah, that dude shouldn't have got bailed, but he did get bailed, I think. He got one, uh, what was it, one million?
1: A, a million dollars.
0: Yeah. Did he ever get out? No. Okay, good.
1: Not that I know
0: of. Right. But, but, you know, it is something wrong, though. When we have people sitting in jail for a year for two years, they are actually people waiting on trial that long and languaging in jail because their family or they cannot uh make bail and that's just that's just not right, man. That's punishment we're without we're even convicting on a
1: guy here on new abolition that was in jail for seven years waiting for a trial
0: so um. It says, uh, let me go ahead and read a little bit more. When a person is charged with a crime, a judge typically sets a bond at a particular dollar figure to ensure the individual returns to court. If a defendant can afford to pay the full amount, it will be returned when he or she shows up in court. The money is forfeited if the defendant does not show. But nearly half of felony defendants can't afford to pay, according to Pre-Child Justice Institute, a D.C.-based pre-child reform organization. As a result, roughly 60 percent of the population of local jails across the country comprises people waiting for their case to be heard, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. That process can take years. So that's exactly what we were uh, uh, just talking about. And and so yeah, and and this will also I, I would guys, do you think this will also uh, eliminate the bail industry? Because you know she's she didn't mention the bail industry. You know you typically pay ten percent of whatever your bond is, and we talked about that on this program uh, in, in the past. But it's ridiculous for people to be in jail for years and um, you know not even be convicted of anything.
1: Right. We saw that with Khalif Browder, who had a $3,000 bail and was unable to pay it to get out and spent three years in jail. We saw that same thing with Sandra Bland. where no sooner that she got in jail than she was hit with a $5,000 bail and uh, was unable to get out. She was stressing with her parents. Remember the phone calls about how she was trying to get the money together? She, was, uh, she needed to get 500 to get the bail bond, which was the 10% that she would need in order to get out. And that's money that they couldn't afford and would never see again. And I, I would hope that it would make bail bondsmen illegal in this country. Hunting human beings by people who aren't even law enforcement and don't even have freaking licenses to be a part of law enforcement is ridiculous. In the whole world, only two countries practice a bail bond system, and that's us and the Philippines. We're the only two nations in the whole fucking planet that do that. Oh, I want to give a shout out too to Brian Stevenson, man, from uh, Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, I just found out yesterday that he received a million dollars from Google. Shout out to Brian Stevenson. He's an abolitionist, man, and he just got a million dollar check from Google. Let's see what he does with it. Mm.
0: Uh, Johan, and I had you muted. You're unmuted now. Right on, y'all. I mean, y'all pretty much summed it
3: up. We always cover the bail situation, uh, you know, pretty thoroughly. I mean, again, you, as you mentioned, there's been plenty of people we talked about that have stayed in jail for years and years. I mean, New York is notorious for folks being locked in Rikers for years. I mean, our our, our good uh, young brother uh, that we lost, uh, Khalif Browder, he was in there for nearly three years, and they gave you the full details of how. They're able to keep innocent people locked up for years. All the prosecutor has to do is show up in court for a couple of minutes, give the judge a note that says, I'm working on a case that's more important than this one. Push this back. Give me six more months. I'll be ready. And they did that to him six months, three months, nine months at a time. They did that to him for three years. Now, you're be- supposed to have a constitutional right to a, to a speedy,
1: speedy trial, trial right? trial,
0: right. That's right.
3: Sixth Amendment.
0: Well, hey, you know what I, I story just story thought story. about? This is also how they're getting people to plead out.
2: Yep. That's yep. the next point.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and
1: you can't I, get
0: out of jail. Yeah, you done been in there a year, year and a half, and, and then you you, you yep. know your resolve might break down and you'd be like, you know what, this ain't worth it. I'll take a plea deal. I'm not guilty of anything, but I just gotta get out of here. You know, maybe he'll give me a deal for a time server or something like that.
3: Well, you've got a family. A lot of people have families. You know they're not doing... Right. Jobs, homes, payments of whatever sort. They're trying to keep their life some kind of way together. And uh, you know they're removing the uh, actual visitation. You got to do the digital, the the phone conference. Pay to be on the video monitor to visit people. So they're dehumanizing the folks that are on the other side of the wall, on the other side of the, the jail bars or whatever, every single day in every way possible. But it's a, it's important to understand, as you dehumanize that person, like you take a person out of their family and out of their job and out of their community and put them in jail, and then you're able to get away with that by saying, oh, well, they're a criminal. You just don't know, but we caught them doing this, this, and this. Well, they haven't been proven guilty of anything. But in the process of keeping them locked up for those for that months or years while they're waiting for their opportunity to be tried you're also making them a non-human to their family that they were pulled away from when you take away like actual visitations when the only way they can see them is through a computer screen to talk you know on the, on the other side of a video monitor you're taking away hugs you're taking away getting a chance to kiss your children embrace your children them be able to smell your scent, you being able to smell them, being able to look at them and see their faces face to face. These are the things that make people stay human beings and have families and, and care about their own lives. But this system has worked to dehumanize people, the actual individual, and then dehumanize them in the, in the, in the definition of their own family members that would be the only advocates fighting for them, looking out for them, giving them good advice. Hey, man, stick it out. You know you didn't do it. We're going to fight for you. You're going to get your trial. When you lose your family and you haven't seen them for nine months, a year, only time you got to talk to them a couple times through a video monitor, at the end of that, you're even more crushed. You're even more likely to say, just just whatever, give me the two years and the five years probation. I don't give a damn. I just want out of here. And now you see 97% federal cases that are adjudicated through plea deal, 94% of state cases that are judged through a plea deal as opposed to people going to a trial. Man, this this shit is a scam. Yeah, and
1: that's there's no sixth amendment when you're talking those kinds of numbers. It don't exist, because overall, right now, 95% of all inmates have never even had a trial,
3: never had a trial. So no judge has heard any witnesses' testimony. No juries have seen any kind of evidence against the person, even though the story we talked about earlier, the cops was willing to flat out lie anyway. So they didn't even need to. In this dude's case, they didn't even need to lie or or put the uh, put out the story saying he was doing uh, 360 donuts and it was smoke trails and burnout marks in the street. That would have never even made it to the to the uh, court testimony. That was something that would have strictly he would have just known he had that against him, and the prosecutor would have come in and talked to him after they delayed the case for a good year or two. And he's falling apart as a human being, ain't had outside contact, and lost all his friends, family. He's marked as a criminal. At this point, now he knows his life is pretty much changed, if not over. So, 18 months into it, you still ain't had your trial, and the, and the prosecutors bringing this evidence back to you and showing what well, the cop said you did this, and we got photos, and we got witnesses, and you going down. I'm gonna get you for attempted murder. I'm gonna get you for reckless driving. I'm gonna get you for, you know, you're gonna do 30 years. Yeah, I think I think at that point the guy goes ahead and says, look, I'll take the plea deal, man. Screw it. Just whatever. Just give me the, the ankle bracelet. I'll pay the money to the private prison companies that make ankle bracelets. I'll pay to the private probation companies. I'll pay the court fees. I'll just keep paying and paying and paying with the threat of going back to jail if I don't pay. I mean, this is the real system, people. This is what's really happening.
0: Yes, sir. You just broke that down beautifully.
2: I am a witness. I definitely am a witness. I live that life three separate times. So, yes, you are head on, spot on.
1: Yeah, and and, and as we said, this is a constitutional violation that is fully and completely violated. We're not talking about half the cases. We're not talking about uh, 70% of the cases. We're not talking about 80% of the cases. We're talking about 95% of all people who are in prison right now or in jails right now have never had a trial. And let's add something else to that to show the very much racial aspect of it dealing with these damn catfish is that 90% of all people sitting in jails right now waiting on trials are black or Hispanic. Now those 90% black or Hispanic people will go before a Prosecutor population that is 95% white and 80% white men. So you got all these black and brown people going to all these white men who are prosecutors who are shipping them right off into these prisons with plea bargains without any kind of a trial. And we just talked about the story with the brother doing the, the, the supposedly doing the donuts. Now, what would have happened with him is they would have started stacking charges on him. They would say, look, this here right here could be considered attempted manslaughter because you almost hit that person's wife. Remember, they're lying, so they're going to go the whole route. You know what I mean? So they're going to hit him with attempted manslaughter. They're going to hit him with endangering uh, the citizens and all. Any kind of charge which is a felony that they can get until they get 60, 80, 100 years facing this kid. And the kid has to settle for 10 years. And what did this child do? Nothing more than try to uh, swerve to avoid hitting a freaking cat. Now, and he ends up in prison for ten years.
0: Right, right. And, and and who knows? We might be talking about an honor student here who has scholarship offers to go to college. You know what I'm saying? And then next thing you know, the college finds out that you got a criminal conviction. You got locked up for this or that. And and then like you like y'all both mentioned, you know, pretty much your life has has changed. You know, for for the worse. I mean, it's just so many ways that people are being harmed, man, by, by this, this very evil, corrupt system that needs to be abolished. Not reformed, I to- abolished.
3: Yeah. I know we're going to move on. I obviously want to kind of cap this off with uh, reminding folks that uh, just last year, uh, sitting Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy said it straight up out of his own mouth. The system is broken. You have other federal judges who have come out and said straight up that this way of these plea deals and this bail system and being able to push people's uh, cases off for years at a time, that these are judges that are saying you are robbing us of our power to do our job. We are judges and we ain't judging a damn thing. We just sitting here signing papers that the prosecutors handed. The prosecutors have the power. The judges don't have any power. And their judges are saying that in America, your constitutional right to a fair trial by a jury of your peers is being, is being completely blown out of, the, out of the water in, what, 97% of federal cases, 94% of state cases. These are judges telling you this. This is not just some ranting, raving lunatic that's on this podcast, me, telling you that you should be pissed off or whatever. These are the judges. I mean, who do you need to hear from?
1: Wow. Yeah, man. This needs to be abolished. You can't reform this. This is a crime against humanity. And the judges are being used just like everybody else is being used. And we have to abolish it. It has to end completely. And today, while lives can still be saved. Well, uh, we're running kind of uh, late. We're hitting our 930 uh, point right now it Means we've got to go into our next commercial break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're just going to kind of give you the uh, gist of the next story regarding the human toll of jail. It's something you need to spend some time reading. Uh, it's uh, many stories coming about uh, about the jail, and prison system, individual tales that will really move your heart or touch your soul. We'll touch on it briefly, and then we'll go into our other regular scheduled segment. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parfish, Johanna Nelaya, and, and Scotty Reed. And we'll be right back after these messages.
0: Brothers and sisters!
1: Brothers and sisters! I don't know what this world is coming to!
2: This is
3: Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network,
0: new media for the new millennium.
1: Abolitionist Radio. I have a story that we're coming up. As I said, I need to go through it briefly because we are limited on time today, and it's something you should spend some time reading in depth, called the Human Toll of Jail. And the Human Toll of Jail is an essential part of an emerging national conversation about changing the picture of jail. Presented by the Vera institute justice with supports from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation as part of the Safety and Justice Challenge. The Human Toll of Jail is a platform true stories about and by ordinary people, both those who are who are, are or have been caught up in the criminal justice system and those who work on its front lines. It aims to put a human face to the uses and abuses of jails in the United States to expose the flesh and bone reality, along with every story featured here, Vera brings information about and links to the research. Policy analysis and best practices that address the larger questions and issues. And some of the stories that they have in here are titled Inside the Massive Jail that Doubles as Chicago's Largest Mental Health Facility, also Jailed for Being Homeless. Uh, furthermore, another would say Return to Rikers, which is a story of after two decades of incarceration, a uh, gentleman by the name of Patrick went back to Rikers Island for the first time in 20 years to visit his own son. And the stories like that go on and on, putting a human face on the, uh, the terror and the horrors that are going on to humanity here in the United States of America through our jails systems. I have just posted it at New Abolitionist Radio. As I said, make sure you take a look at this. This is the humanity behind it all. These are real people. And I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up having this story in here, considering what's going on in our own lives. Anything on that one, brothers, before we uh, take it to the next one?
3: No, I'm good. I'll let people do the the reading for themselves. Yeah, it's, it's in-depth story. She want to spend some time on that one for sure.
1: As a matter of fact, Johanna, would you like to take this next one regarding the 1850 memoir links that was found and shows the earliest links of how prisons, uh, were, uh, re- plantations were replaced by prisons specifically through the biography and the, uh, I guess is that like a diary of memoirs of a man who was, uh, part of the prison plantation system before even the Emancipation Proclamation came to be.
3: Yeah, this was an interesting story I found on NPR a couple of days ago, man. I was glad it was added to our list of things to talk about. Just, as we always say, just more the same, man. Just, I don't know. Anyway, this is from NPR. Excuse me. It's um called When Written, uh, Written Behind Bars, this 1850s memoir links prisons to plantations. There's actually an audio that goes along with the transcript here, or whatever, too. It's interesting. Uh, four minutes, 42 seconds of audio. So when uh, we post the link up in the in the page and in the group and whatnot, folks definitely uh, look for that and uh, give it a listen. Um, uh, it's Talking about how at an estate sale back in 2009, um, there was a memoir that was found uh, for sale there from a uh, written in 1850s by Austin Reed, who was a black man who spent most of his life in prison. He says this is this is uh, thought to be the earliest uh, the earliest known prison memoir by an African American writer and it's now been published as The Life and the Adventures of a Haunted Convict. So uh, it says, when Reed's memoir found its way to Yale University, librarians and scholars were eager to get a look at it. Robert Steptoe, a professor of American, African-American studies, has spent a lifetime studying slave narratives. My immediate interest was just to begin to compare what I knew about slave narratives to this man's prison narrative. It says, says, uh, but Reed was never a slave. He was born into a free black uh, family. That, And I'll just will add, that's you know, the writer's propaganda, that's the writer's perspective. Saying that he was never a slave, you just said that the story is about his time in prison, which so anyway, abolitionists understand. Um said he was never a slave, but he's born into a free black family in Rochester around eighteen twenty three, but his memoir nonetheless has its roots in the plantation, says Yale English professor Caleb Smith, who edited his memoir. So I mean I I'll just keep going. But, I mean, they already edited the man's words. Damn it, he told you everything he wanted you to know. What are you editing it for? If you don't want the whole story, then leave it alone. I'm sorry. We sometimes tell the story of where our own racialized system of mass incarceration comes from. As a story that begins in the plantation and ends in the prison, says Smith. What Reed sees is the way the prison was prepared to serve that purpose even before emancipation. So he sees the system taking shape that will allow the prison to become the inheritor of the plantation. Reed's story begins when his father dies. His mother couldn't support the family, so when her young son got into trouble, she sent him out as an indentured servant to a local farmer. Reed was six years old. What the hell kind of trouble did a a six-year-old get into? There's a parallel here to be the slave experience. There's a parallel here. To the slave experience, says Steptoe. Frederick Douglass famously said, All slaves are orphans, uh, he explains. Austin Reed is telling a story of being orphaned, if you will. Part of the story is how he is removed from family. His father is dead, his mother is not in the picture. Things did not go well at the farm. Reed felt that being an indentured servant was like being a slave, especially at this moment in which excuse me, in which the farmer decides to whip him for his idleness. <sighs> Uh, Reed completely associates that with dishonor, with the stigma of being whipped, he says, like a slave. And this provokes in him a kind of crime of revenge that lands him in the House of Refuge. The House of Refuge was the first juvenile reformatory in the United States. Reed may have wanted to escape the whip, but instead encountered it many times at the House of Refuge and later at the Auburn State Prison in upstate New York. During his years in prison, Reed endured many forms of brutal punishment, including an early vo- version of waterboarding. But Smith says nothing provoked Reed as much as the whip, which he continued to vo- view as an icon of slavery. His main p- response to seeing the whip seems to be to want to light a fire, Smith says. His first crime was attempting to burn down the farmer's house. And inside the state prison, there are multiple occasions in which he himself tried to burn down a workshop or try to persuade another enemy to light a fire. This was his form of rebellion. This was his way of answering the lash with flame. Reed's intense anger alternates with feelings of extreme remorse. His descriptions of prison life are vivid and painful. He ends the memoir with this warning. All is dark, cold, chilly, and dismal. Reader, be careful and take warning from one who has passed through the iron gates of sorrow and trouble. Take warning lest you also come to this place of torment and become the inmate of a dark and gloomy prison. The book fits with other prison and crime memoirs of the era, says Smith, but it also has a unique style of its own. You find temperance sermons, you find outlaw ballads, you find very novelistic passages. He was a promiscuous reader, and he learned these forms, and he cobbled them together into something strange and new. Prison may have deprived Reed of his freedom, but it was in prison that he learned to read and write, and that says Steptoe was his salvation. There's no doubt in my mind that his spending time in the 1850s Writing the memoir was a way of creating himself, in a way of somehow or another being at peace with his situation and, and having hope for the future. Reed was released from prison in 1863 and was later pardoned by the governor in uh, the governor of New York. So, nothing new under the sun.
1: Um,
2: we're tracing the history
1: of this thing so far back.
0: Right. right. Yeah, but I disagree with, you know, uh, him going to prison and learning to read being his salvation. I mean, hell, he could have went to one of them free African schools and learned to read or something like somebody could have taught him without him having to go to prison. You know,
3: propaganda, propaganda, Scotty, the propaganda game is real, man. I'm People need you. to understand you got to you've got to learn the truth so you know the truth and you recognize the truth and you recognize the propaganda and then you can protect your mind from it ever even being able to get inside your head. It won't even be able to get into you. It's so many things in this story. This is the way that we get a chance to report this man's story and find out about this book and find out, you know, information and all that's good. But just even the way that and and NPR is seen as largely as being a a liberal,
0: uh, you know, publication. Yeah. And that was my uncle for some reason last night that I was talking to for 40 hours to convince this man just how evil and wicked Hillary Clinton is. That's one of the things I mean, he was talking about, you know, uh, you need to call in the NPR and and maybe that'll be a way that you can get more listeners for Black Talk, Black Talk Radio. I said, oh, I said, we have a strategy and it's working. Our listener audience continues to grow. We had 250,000 unique listeners. I mean, close to 250,000 listeners. He was like NPR. This, I said, but uh, I don't listen to corporate media. He said, that's not corporate. That's that's you know, they take donations, and, and the Republicans want to shut them down. So, but I was like, I used to listen to NPR, you know, when when I had a regular uh uh working, you know, for somebody else, and I would pick up on the propaganda and the codified racism from M- I have caught NPR, you know, in different various stories uh telling lies. I'm not trying to say that it's not a good source of information, but like anything, you know, like you just said, yo honey, uh you have to have your mind right, you know, so that you could recognize, you know, the little subtle uh, lies that they telling you to say, hey, this was a good thing for him going because we hear that today. We hear that with Unicorn, you know, the 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 corporation, a private prison corporation owned by USA Inc. Okay, the United States government, and on their website, what do they say? They oh, we're providing these. Uh, uh, prisoners with skills and life-changing you know uh, uh, skills and, and then when they get out of prison they damn sure ain't gonna get no job with that felony status a lot of them won't and certainly not you know with the companies that's using them as prison slave labor why would they do that they will continue to keep using prison slave labor but to hear unicorns sell it Tell it, you know, uh we're doing these people a service. We're we're giving them putting them on a schedule because you know, before they came to us, they were just lazy and life all out of order and, and we giving them order and now we're put making them productive and whatnot. So yeah, you you right, Johan, we gotta guard our minds against this propaganda. So
1: you know, even if you don't know the truth, one way of guarding your mind is to learn what a fallacy is. You can recognize a fallacy. You don't even have to know the story behind it. You can see a fallacy with your eyes and recognize it, you know? And then once you start understanding what fallacies are and studying a few of them, maybe memorizing half a dozen, that alone can protect you from many lies and much
2: propaganda.
1: Matter of fact, when I first met Johanan, that was one of the things that led me to believe that he and I were kindred spirits because Johanan was educating the people around him about book fallacies, doing it on a weekly basis.
3: Yeah, the good old days. (laughs) I wonder if anybody was listening to me, man. It's still so, so prevalent. And, And again, I mean, I'm just looking at things in terms of you know, just systems. You know, I, I'm I'm always commenting with with friends and coworkers and whatnot, just talking about, you know, how some of my posts come off as uh, quote unquote racist because racist is just the easiest term to reach for and try to throw out there, um, or you know, offensive to people or whatever. And it's like people take what they read or whatever that I post or what have you for to to support whatever their agenda already is. They don't necessarily just read and believe what I'm saying. If they think I'm racist and they use it to oh see, that's right, you hate white people. If it's a black person that wanna, you know, use it to say I'm too nice to they can use the same pose and say I'm too nice to white I mean you you just it's like just get the truth, man. Just get the story and get the truth out of it, then decide what are you gonna do. See, it's easier, it's a fallacy when you look at everything other than the actual point of the story. You attack me personally. That's that's attacking me, you're not you're not addressing the
2: story. I so,
3: yeah
1: indeed man well there you have it brothers uh i think it's time to go on to our next segment we still got two more left in our closing statements uh so we got to keep it moving um our next segment coming up is going to be our 21st century rider of the underground railroad now this is an incredible story that we're bringing to you we're not going to read it in uh, full detail because it deserves a long read like the uh other lake that we were telling you about we're going to put it on New Abolitionist Radio, and I'll give you the short version of it. Uh, it's in regards to Albert Woodfox. Fox. Albert Woodfox Fox spent almost all of the, uh, his 43 years in prison in lockdown, much of it in Louisiana's notorious Angola prison in a six-foot by nine-foot cell with concrete bunks and a metal toilet and a sink. The cell had iron bars at the front, which at least allowed him to hear other prisoners. The most recent lockup in West Feliciana Parish Jail, where he was awaiting a third trial for the 1972 murder of a prison officer, of which he has always professed his innocence, didn't even have that facility. It was a solid steel door that enclosed Wood Fox entirely as in, in a tomb. The only view of the concrete cell Uh, Out of the concrete cell was a tiny slit of window that presented a sliver of sky. For more than four decades, he was held in these cells alone for 23 hours a day. The remaining hours were spent in the exercise yard, a rather attractive way of describing a concrete box lined with barbed wire fencing, which he could walk around shackled and entirely on his own, despite his vow. To survive, the years took their toll. He went through bouts of claustrophobia and panic attacks. For one three year period, Woodfox suffered such intense claustrophobia that every time he lay down, he felt he was being smothered. So he took to leaning his mattress against the wall, wrapping himself in a blanket, and sleeping, sitting up. The panic attacks started with sweating. You sweat and you can't stop. You become soaking wet, he said. You are asleep in your bunk and everything is soaking wet. Then when the claustrophobia starts, it feels like the atmosphere is pressing down on you. That was hard, he said. I used to talk to myself to convince myself I was strong enough to survive, just to hold on to my sanity until the feeling went away. There was times, of course, when it came close to the edge Losing his great friend and fellow political traveler, Herman Wallace, was very difficult. Wallace was released from a Louisiana prison in 2013, as reported right here on New Abolitionist Radio, but not until he reached the age, uh, a stage of terminal liver cancer. He died two days after being set free, having endured 41 years of solitary confinement, just like his buddy. Albert Woodfox. And today, Albert Woodfox is walking free. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you and say welcome to freedom, Brother Albert Woodfox.
0: Salute! Definitely. Salute, salute. And I became aware of him about maybe four years ago when I started doing uh, Political Prisoner Radio, which is on hiatus right now as we search for um, a new uh, co-host to take my place and whatnot but um i learned about the Ain they were known as the angola three uh they were in the black panther uh party prison the prison chapter at angola prison a former uh um you know slave plantation um what, literally it, literally literally and when they went into prison right. uh rape was rampant there was a lot of racial ass animosity with you know Riots between the whites and the blacks and whoever else was in there, and and they organized to 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 bring uh civility between the prisoners and getting them to not prey on each other and and provide entertainment for the guards and you know uh, implemented education programs and whatnot and and so but Albert Woodfox has uh um, also um filed federal cases and whatnot they have a a very uh important well it's attacking the system in very important ways I'm, i'm trying to recall yeah like um a prison rape you know and and then also i think he filed some lawsuits pertaining to uh solitary confinement and also uh the brutal uh treatment of invasive searches and whatnot i mean this man when he was in prison now he was in solitary confinement over 40 years. You know, only human contact he has is with guards. For you know, uh, I think he might have got an hour outside the cell a day, but that was his only contact. He's in solitary confinement, all right. And so, why in the hell are you sticking your fingers up his ass every time he moved? He come out the cell, you know, like like you know, where has he been? He ain't been nowhere. That cell is the same as when y'all left it you know, an hour ago, so why are you, you know, sticking your, that's a form of torture right there, man, that's sick, and it's sadistic, and this man has endured hell, I mean, pure D hell, to see his comrades, or hear about his comrade, Herman dying, and not being able to even attend the funeral, or or whatnot, so, I mean, these are, and and Herman Wallace is just one, uh, I mean, excuse me. Albert Wood Fox is just one of many political prisoners associated with COINTELPRO, which the United States government has admitted in court hearings, okay, Senate hearings, not court hearings, Senate hearings, that it was an illegal program to target people, and they utilized assassination as well as framing people, and, and just all kind of manner of, of illegal acts. This is the FBI working with local uh, police departments. And there are many uh, more uh, uh, Albert Wood Foxes who are still behind bars. You know, people that, that that struggle for our human rights, man. And we are not doing them any justice. I was just reading um, um, an article about Dr. Matulu Shakur um who was a political prisoner he was um he he did, he wasn't in the Black Panther party his brother was and but he still worked with them he was also in uh RAM um and then also uh the Republic of New Africa he you know and his focus was on helping Uh, People who had overdosed on drugs and helping them beat their addictions. And he was framed by COINTELPRO, and I was reading about him today. And this is Tupac Shakur's uncle. And I would think, you know, with all the fans that Tupac had worldwide, that you would have more than just a tiny handful of people uh, advocating for the release of Tupac's dad, the revolutionary Dr. Matulu Shakur. It's just a shame, man.
1: It is a shame. And that's uh, America's longest uh, standing solitary confinement prisoner, Albert Fox, 43 years and 10 months. Continuous captivity, being tortured. Well, this brings us to the conclusion of that segment and uh, the beginning of our next, where we recognize our, uh, our forebears and the people who have fought this fight before us. Our abolitionists in profile. Now, I don't have the link, Scotty, and I don't see it on our planning page. Uh, would you by any chance have our abolitionists in profile handy today?
0: Uh, yes, I do. Uh, let me go ahead and uh, cue up our music, and this comes to you from Biography.com. Uh, let me just go ahead and pull pull this up. <laughs> Grace Greenwood was a 19th century poet, journalist, and activist who championed many progressive causes while creating a path for women in news media. Uh, Born on September 23, 1823 in Pompeii, New York, Grace Greenwood became a popular poet, children's scribe, and journalist who was the New York Times' first female writer. She was a staunch abolitionist and champion of women's rights actively hitting the lecture circuit and lived in Europe for a time. The author of many books, including a biography of Queen Victoria, Greenwood died on April 20th, 1904. Uh, Writer Grace Greenwood was born Sarah Jane Clark on September 23rd, 1823 in Pompeii, New York. Uh, Clark and her family eventually relocated to New Brighton, Pennsylvania, where she attended the women's school, of the Greenwood Institute, which may have been the inspiration for her future author, Alias. She earned recognition in her early 20s for the poetry she published in publications. She became a sought-after scribe and would write under both her pseudonym and her birth name, becoming a regular contributor to some of the top papers of the day. She also became known for her children's fiction, including later stories like Bessie's, Rayburn's Christmas Adventure, and The Drummer Boy. Um... Activist and trailblazer, Greenwood was a firm believer in abolitionism. In the mid-19th century, she was fired from writing for Louis A. Gotti's magazine, Gotti's Ladies Book, for expressing her anti-slavery beliefs in the national era, a weekly that later published Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Progressive politics had nonetheless found another champion, as Greenwood would also come to speak on prison reform and ending the death penalty, as well as Native American and women's rights. Uh, let's see. Traveling to Europe in 1852, she became the first woman reporter to work for the New York Times, providing overseas dispatches. Then in the fall of 1853, Greenwood married Leander K. Lippincott. The couple went on to have a daughter, Annie Grace. In the same year as their wedding, Greenwood and her husband became the creators of the Little Pilgrim heralded as the first U.S. magazine for children. It had a successful run until its publishing fortunes were altered by the Civil War. Uh, Let's see. During the war, Greenwood spoke regularly to Union troops and was active in raising funds for supplementary medical care services in the form of the U.S. Sanitary Commission with President Abraham Lincoln singling out the writer for her dedication. Um, uh, that's pretty much all that pertains to her abolitionism. Uh, she did later suffer from, uh, the affliction of bronchitis and she died at her daughter's home in New Rochelle, New York on April the 20th, 1904 at the age of 80 and abolitionist radio salutes Grace Greenwood, uh, abolitionist, a poet and a journalist. Salute. So I picked that one because she was a poet, Max. <laughs> like you. Do we still got Max on the line? Or did we lose him? At uh,
3: a... I, I haven't heard him comment. He may, You know, he may be in and out, man. You know, he's at the hospital. And right,
0: things. right, right. So, uh, yeah, we lost Max. Okay. Uh, but we have only a few minutes left in the program. Let me see. We got Max back. There you go. All right. All right. We got a few minutes left in the program. Coming up at 10 o'clock is the Lotus uh, Place. All right, Max, I don't know when we lost you. We got you back. Is that you? Yes, sir. Okay. We're back.
1: And, you know, I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm going to start out our final statements, if you don't mind. And uh, maybe you and Johanna can close us out. I just wanted to say that uh, – tomorrow is the birthday of my great aunt, Grace Brown, who raised me from birth. Grace Brown will be turning 96 tomorrow. Uh, she was born in upstate Newburgh, New York. Uh, she is the daughter of a native born American Indian out of South Carolina and African American, uh, father. Uh, Grace was raised by former slaves from South Carolina who had traveled, or actually from Georgia and Savannah, who had traveled from the South to the North to escape the fugitive slave laws back then. And she was raised by these people. So she is a direct link to our history for me, and I've learned so much from her. Happy birthday, Grace Brown. I'll see you as soon as possible, and I love you.
0: Happy birthday.
1: Happy birthday
3: yeah i'll just just make my brief okay let me go i'm gonna be brief okay i'm just gonna tell everybody what i always say peace to the abolitionists and death to the oppressors man y'all heard all the news you continue to hear it every week you continue to hear us back up everything we say with actual facts and evidence and figures and the top reporters and the top political officials on record with what they're saying so uh once again fellas we own a we own a unprecedented, unbroken streak from day one of this program ever airing to this day. They ain't caught us telling not their tale. Everything we said is the truth. It's just a matter of what people want to do about it.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I'll just keep my comments brief as, as well. Um, this isn't going to end um, itself. Slavery is what I'm talking about. It's not going to end itself. You know, it took a civil war um, you know, pushing for a civil war and engaging in a civil war to just end it temporarily because that's all the Emancipation Proclamation was, was a temporary reprieve from slavery for the enslaved Africans that were in the territories of the Confederate states. It did not free not a single enslaved African that was in uh, the states and in territories that were not in, in rebellion. All right. But uh, those men and women who sacrificed their lives, who sacrificed everything uh, for the cause of abolitionism. Um, They were tricked. They were lied to. And, you know, it was a few years later after the passage of the 13th Amendment and whatnot that Frederick Douglass had went around and and talked about how slavery uh, was never actually abolished. It's right there in the 13th Amendment in plain English like I kept trying to read it to my my uncle last night. No, I had him read it to me. And, and he still couldn't make the connection that slavery was never abolished. I had him read it three times and I said, well, stop right there after he said, except for punishment for crime. And I, how can you abolish something and then make an exception for it as punishment? As long as they convict you, and we know we have a racist court system, we just talked about doing this program, how the system is broken. Even Supreme Court justices have have said that. But I would disagree. The system is not broken. It's working exactly like how it was designed to work. We are going to have to not we're we're not going to have to break it, but we need to smash it. All right. Uh, You can't like Max always says, like Johannes says, you can't reform slavery. You have to abolish it. And I hope that uh, we at least reach some people tonight. If you weren't an abolitionist before this program and you stay stuck with us and listen to our commentary, uh, I hope that you we can call you an abolitionist now and count you among the ranks. Um, that's all I got, Max.
1: Remember, abolition is a reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace. God
3: bless tribal Rain.
2: Word.